Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, along with visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to the WFIU audience. On today's program, WFIU's Yael Cassander speaks with writer Dan Wakefield. Yael spoke with Wakefield in the fall of 2015 when he was celebrating the reissue of his World War II homefront novel, Under the Apple Tree. Indianapolis native Dan Wakefield is the author of many books of fiction and nonfiction. A graduate of Shortridge High School and Columbia University, Wakefield has also worked as a journalist and screenwriter. He created the critically acclaimed NBC series James at 15 in 1977. His two best-selling novels were made into major motion pictures, Starting Over in 1979, starring Burt Reynolds, Candace Bergen, and Jill Clayburgh, and Going All the Way, his 1970 novel, became a movie in 1997 starring Ben Affleck. Wakefield has taught fiction writing at Boston University and the Iowa Writers' Workshop and regularly teaches writing workshops about accessing one's spirituality. So, Dan, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. It's, Good to be here. It's <laughs> a great honor to meet you and to have you here not only at IU, but living back here in Indiana after quite a long time away. Your friend and fellow Shortridge alum, Kurt Vonnegut, predicted that after the publication of Going All the Way, you'd have to watch the Indy 500 on TV for the rest of your life. That's right. And you did your best to stay away for many years. You had a lot of adventures along the way. You worked as a journalist for a number of years. What were you doing, and and how did that work inform your path? Well, right after I got out of Columbia, uh, I had a really wonderful break. I was assigned to cover the Emmett Till murder trial in Mississippi, which was sort of the first big racial story after the Supreme Court decision on segregation, outlawing segregation in the schools. And that was for The Nation magazine. And then I wrote an article about Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker. And then I went to the publisher. I was just a year and a half out of college, and I had read somewhere that Hemingway said to be a real writer, you had to be shot at. So I thought, well, where in the world are people being shot at? This is 1956. So I asked if I could go to Israel. And I asked the publisher, I said, if you'll give me enough money to go to Israel, stay for a month or so, I'll write you a series of articles. And he said, well, I guess you want to get in trouble, but if you want to do it, okay. So uh, The Nation was not a wealthy magazine. In fact, my payment for the Emmett Till murder case was a round-trip bus ticket from New York to Sumner, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. And my uh, payment for going to Israel, I had a round-trip ticket on a boat called the SS Israel, and it took 13 days from New York to Haifa. And I was able to stay about six months 
because there is a tradition that if you went to a kibbutz, you could always stay for three days, but after that you had to work. And if you're willing to work at whatever job they assigned you, you could continue. So I would go to a place and work and then get a story out of it. And my best job of all, I worked as a shepherd in the Negev Desert, which uh, turned out to be harder than I thought. Uh, I thought it would be like sitting on a hillside and <laughs> playing a lute. But in fact, uh, you had to chase the sheep all the time because they're always running away. I, I mean, I, I had to get these jobs to then have something to write about. So at each kibbutz I went, I would get a job and then I would have a story about the life on that kibbutz. And and then sometimes I, I remember I heard that at the time there was shooting of the Israeli fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee. So I went to Nazareth and was very lucky to find a man who spoke English. He learned it in the British Army and he took me out on his fishing boat. And we went up close to the Syrian shore and saw the gun embankments. And so, you know, I got a story out of that. So I can't help but think, though, that this lust for adventure and need for adrenaline was in response or reaction, perhaps, to maybe what you perceived as an overly dreary or staid life in Indianapolis? Well, I, I'll tell you one moment uh, that was very memorable. When I was working as a shepherd, uh, the sheep camp was even more removed than the kibbutz at the time, and it was really out in the desert. There were three shepherds who were each given a rifle when we took the flock out because there might be unfriendly Bedouin tribes. But uh, we got back just at sunset. We left at dawn, got back at sunset. And the only way you bathe, there was a pipeline from Beersheba to a lot. And they had a way of opening the pipeline and a huge thing of water would come out. And that's the way you bathe. You take off your clothes and stand in this jet of cold water. And I remember looking up at the stars and I've never seen stars like that so thick anywhere. And I remember thinking, well, I've come a long way from Indiana. <laughs> and uh, that was a feeling of accomplishment. <laughs> Nonetheless, I also imagine that your preparation at Shortridge did stand you in good stead. Shortridge was known at the time as the only okay. high school that had its only daily paper. Yeah, Shortridge was great. Not only that, school number 80 was great, which is now a condo, I'm sad to say. Oh. But school 80 had a newspaper called The Rippler. And then Shortridge, The Daily Echo, and at Columbia, The Daily Spectator. And when I was at Shortridge, I was the sports correspondent, Shortridge sports correspondent for the Star, and then I worked uh, on the sports desk of the Star one summer in college. So that was all great experience. We learn what I like to think is a little bit about your adolescence in uh, the book that's just been republished under the apple tree. I do want to know whether or not your childhood resembled Artie's. Uh, my childhood very much resembled Artie's in that I was a Cub Scout and Boy Scout. I collected scrap metal and scrap paper. 
the idea for the novel came to me <clears throat> and when I was living in Boston, and one day I walked out to breakfast, and I just got this visual memory of me as a kid sitting on the roof of my house on Winthrop looking for enemy airplanes because <laughs> I was a junior air raid spotter, and I'd memorized the outlines of Messerschmitt Stukas and Japanese Zeros. And when I had that memory come back, I thought, that is like insane. Here's a kid in the middle of the country thinking he's looking for enemy airplanes in World War II. And I thought if I could explain that why the kid's on that roof, then that's a book. But then I realized, yeah, but there's not a book just in a kid collecting scrap metal and look, you know. So the plot really came to me from the song, Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anyone Else But Me. So I had to give the, the boy an older brother. I don't have any old brothers or sisters. So, but I lived next door to a cousin who was in the Air Force. And then down the street, a boy on our block joined the Marines. So I imagined Artie having a uh, older brother who's a Marine who gets wounded in Guadalcanal. And also I imagined him from the song having a girl he leaves behind and he tells the younger brother to kind of look after her and see that she doesn't sit under the apple tree. <laughs> and of course she does, but then the story becomes the story. But I think all fiction, it begins with something and then it goes into something it's not in your experience at all, but that's where you're creating a story. Well, you create the tone of that time extremely effectively, whether it's from all of the songs that you evoke, the brand names, you know, Double Mint Gum and Ralston Cereal and Kame Soap. We're really immersed in that time. Um, I can tell you, I could still sing the Ralston Serial for you <laughs> song. That was Jack Arm. No, uh, that was Tom Mix. Uh, Tom Mix, the cowboy. Yes, yes. And even the expressions and uh, everything. You've, you've really recreated that word as you have recreated the relationship between those brothers. So it does strike me as Amazing that that was a fictional one, that you didn't yeah, have but, an older brother. You know, I think people don't understand about fiction. I mean, like they think going all the way, oh, all that stuff happened. Uh, the whole idea of fiction is that you, you make up a story. Life doesn't have neat little stories like that. So you really have to, it's all like, what if? What if you had an older brother? And what if he was wounded? And what if his girl, you know, all that. But I think then I've always enjoyed recreating the actual time, the era, with the songs and the commercials and what newspapers and magazines said. It does feel almost like a multimedia collage at <laughs> times. I can hear it. Um, it looks as though you have a passage picked out that you'd like to well, read. Well, just to show you how amazing it was, what misinformation we were given. This now seems hard to believe. This was in Time magazine, which was assumed to be, you know, for educated people. And it was uh, an article on how you tell the Chinese, our friends, from the Japanese. 
and it says, those who know them both often rely on their facial characteristics to tell them apart. The Chinese expression is likely to be placid, kindly, open. The Japanese, more positive, dogmatic, arrogant. Japanese are nervous in conversation, laugh loudly at the wrong time. <laughs> Most Chinese avoid horn-rimmed spectacles. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, anyway, it was amazing, but, but the prejudice was so deep. And in, as I described this, in grade school, we were given war stamp books, and you're supposed to buy 10 cent or 25 cent war stamps, and you pasted them in these little booklets over cartoon figures of Japanese with fangs and blood dripping out of their mouth. So, and, and also the slogan you pasted over was slap the Jap right off the map. Wow. And one thing we didn't even know or I didn't hear uh, that Japanese on the West Coast were put in internment camps during the war. They were houses and businesses were taken away. Uh, and that's a whole other story. But I hadn't, and I think most people didn't have any idea that was going on. Well, there's a lot we didn't know, and there's definitely a lot that Artie, the mm. child who goes from age 9 to age 13 in the yeah. book, doesn't know simply by virtue of his age. Yeah. But the kind of extremely charming and irresistible way that you tell this story mm. is by presenting it through his eyes, yes. yeah. his naivete, yeah. and this kind of very satisfying um, disjunction between what he knows and what we as yeah. readers in this right. year yeah. and at our age now. And, and, you know, I tried to, one of the things I tried to do was to show the man-woman hypocrisy. Uh, his, when his brother comes home and with another veteran, and they're talking about all the women they made out with overseas, and Artie is worried that he knows that the girlfriend back home had an affair with one guy. But he starts questioning his brother. Well, if it's okay for the guys <laughs> to go do that, what about if a girl just, oh, oh, well, no, that's a whole other thing. No, that would be terrible. <laughs> right. So it, it, like, exposes, I think, that contradiction and disjointed outlook. It's really well done. And we remember putting those same kinds of pieces together for ourselves at that time. Yeah. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. Another interesting thing about that I that I noticed not only in Under the Apple Tree but but also in Going All the Way is your diction. It seems to me that you are very well informed by having tuned in for many many radio dramas over the years. Yes. You have a real ear for language. It seems as though your prose is written for the ear, not just for the eye. You know, 
the radio was such a big part. Uh, I didn't see any uh, television set till I was a senior in high school. And in a way, it was disappointing. I mean, like, I had this great image of the Lone Ranger. And when I saw him on television, I thought, oh, my God, that guy's not so great. You know, the the radio allowed you to imagine things that, that you could make much more exciting and, and glamorous and all that. And you even talk but, about the ritual of the family sitting around listening to the, oh, to yeah. the big radio console in yeah. the living room. I remember people used to look at the radio as if you could see something. You know, One of the craziest lines of dialogue is something that somebody really said. <clears throat> I'm, I don't know, craziest in the context. I talk about the boy going to scout camp, and I talk about how a senator coming and giving them a speech to the Boy Scouts information. And in reality, it was Governor Henry Schricker, who was governor of Indiana, and he said that he was glad we were Boy Scouts and that many Boy Scouts were brave serving in the, in the Army and that some of those had been captured by the Nazis and refused to tell information about troop movements and so on. He said, even though... The Nazis tortured them and beat their privates to jelly. Well, the right hand of every boy went down to protect himself at that moment on the parade ground. And it was just amazing. And I thought, oh, my. I mean, later thinking about that, I, I sometimes think the the most shocking lines in my novels are ones I didn't make up, but I heard <laughs> I couldn't have made that up. But. Uh, um, speaking of the radio, there there are some resemblances between this book and the way it's delivered and um, the stories of Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard, of yeah. course, the author of the stories on which... A Christmas Story with yeah. space. So the Hoosier that, radio that personality. Movie, that's my childhood. Yeah. The shoveling coal in the furnace and uh, wanting a Daisy, uh, Red Rider, uh, BB gun, the whole thing. I, I did. It was my life. All of the brand <clears throat> names and the songs. And Gene Shepard is from Indiana. Yes. Did yeah. you know? Did you know him? I didn't. I'm sorry, I didn't. But when I was first out of college in New York, I listened to his late night program. All of my friends loved him, and he once gave a show. I wish, I'm sure there's a way to find it. One of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. He talked about when he was first working for a station in Chicago, and driving home back to Evansville driving through Indiana on Christmas Eve and going through the little towns and the lights, the Christmas lights on. It's really beautiful. And he, he, he was funny. He could also be very sensitive and evocative of, of the place. And there was always a strong uh, stripe of satire running oh, through, yeah. as well as there is with you.
You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. On today's program, WFIU's Yael Cassander speaks with Indianapolis native Dan Wakefield. Wakefield is a best-selling novelist, journalist, screenwriter, and writer on spirituality. Now, let's jump from, mm-hmm. you mentioned Columbia. Let's go from your, your madcap years as a journalist, jetting all over the world and having adventures, to writing fiction and writing non, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. What, how, did, how did you make that transition, and why did you decide not to continue on as a journalist? Well, I did continue on, but, but my dream had always been to write a novel, and... Um, I like to tell this because it's, uh, I think, a good lesson for me and everybody. But uh, my first book, Island in the City, was about Puerto Ricans in New York. And then I wanted to write my novel. And I wrote 50 pages of the novel, and my agent sent it to Houghton Mifflin, who'd published a nonfiction book. And then I was in New York, and they're in Boston. They invited me. They paid my way to come to Boston to have lunch at this very fashionable restaurant. I remember saying to my agent, is this good or bad? He said, well, it could be either one. So the editor-in-chief of Houghton Mifflin and other executives were there, and they said, well, Dan, we think you're a wonderful young journalist, but we've read these 50 pages of your novel. You're not a novelist, so we'd be glad to publish any of your journalism. And I later thought, you know, they could have just said, we didn't like that 50 pages, but... I've always said to people, don't let anybody else tell you what you are or who you are. And I kind of wrote fiction under the cover of darkness. You know, I didn't tell. There was one older friend, a poet named Mae Swenson, who was very helpful to me, a real mentor, and she encouraged me, and that meant a lot. But I must have made four or five attempts at writing the novel and finally did it and. I guess I finished, I wrote it in 68 and 69, and it came out in 1970. But it was a great feeling, and it was, I couldn't wait to send a copy to Houghton Mifflin and say, well, <laughs> and it did become a Time Magazine bestseller and had a lot of good things happen to it. Wow. Uh, Those 50 pages that you showed them, were they anything that eventually ended up in Going All the Way? No, not at all. And, I, you know, I wrote three or four other, maybe a hundred pages of a novel, but it wasn't it. Uh, for one thing, I'd been writing a lot of magazine articles to pay the rent, and I got, out of the blue, I got a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. And also, I had just finished, I wrote a whole <clears throat> issue of the Atlantic Monthly about the effect of the Vietnam War on this country called Super Nation at Peace and War. And then that became a book. So that gave me a little money. And then the Rockefeller thing enabled me to just clear my mind and just work on the novel. And I I sort of said to myself, this is it. If I don't do it now, it's never going to happen. And so you were were in your late 30s when you were writing Mm -hmm. Going All the Way. It's been called The Hoosier Catcher in the Rye. 
and um, it was a bestseller, as you mentioned. Yeah. It was turned into a movie. And what I adore about the book is the view of middle America in the 1950s, mm. that extremely well-observed and mm. jaundiced view. Mm. We are seeing mm. Indianapolis after the Korean War through the eyes mm. of a young man who's just come back and doesn't quite know what his next step yeah. is. Well, it's, it's two young men, and, and they're both trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And you're right, it, it is a satire, of the, mainly the Midwest, but the whole country was like that. I mean, one of the characters in the book, and this never happened in real life, one of the characters is part of his rebellion in Indianapolis. He grows a beard, and they, <laughs> they don't let him go into the Meridian Hills swimming pool. In, in fact, I didn't know anybody who had a beard in Indianapolis in those times. I think they might have been kicked out of town. But what I've said to people is the same story could have happened in Cleveland, Minneapolis, Detroit, but I don't know anything about those places. And I, I, I think you, you have to have a feeling and emotion and, and a love of the place that, that you're writing about. And, and a lot of people didn't get that, but that's, that's in there. The book centers around this friendship between Sonny and Gunner, yeah. the two GIs who've come back. But we see a lot of interesting female characters that seem to represent some gender stereotypes oh, yeah. that that you know that women I think yeah. were bucking against at the time. Yeah. And you know what I've tried to say is does anybody think I was promoting that? I mean, it's you, the behavior in there that affected and I think damaged both men and women is not, I mean, I was trying to satirize that. I was trying to say, this is crazy. But uh, a lot of people take it like, oh, I guess you really like that or something. I don't know. Well, but, I, th I think that what makes that clear is that, again, you, we are learning about this world through the eyes hmm. of a 20 yeah, twenty-something-year-old. Yeah. In the way he would be thinking at that time. You, that's the thing. You can't go back and impose the way people later understand things, and that that causes a lot of uh, misunderstanding. Well, so as Vonnegut predicted, the book did ruffle a lot of feathers. Yeah. Tell, talk about the effect that it had. Well. Uh, one guy was going to come to Boston and shoot me. That's where I live. <laughs> Two were going to come and beat me up. They thought that they saw themselves portrayed in the book. Is that it? Yeah. And one woman who I only knew her name uh, said that I had ruined her marriage. I knew nothing about her life. And uh, she thought she was like one of the characters. And it's well-known, and I have said this too, that the character of Gunner, the former jock hero, is based on a, an old friend. And the funny thing is, I didn't really get to know him till we were both in New York. I didn't know him when we lived in Indianapolis. Uh, I met him at the Red Key Tavern, Christmas of 54, and he was gonna come to Columbia on the GI Bill, and I was just about to graduate. And we shared an apartment, and we were best friends. And also, I was really 
I wanted a complete contrast of Gunner, the confident jock, to a really shy, introverted, intellectual guy. And that was not me. I mean, I was the editor of the yearbook and the, uh, wrote a sports column in the Shortridge Daily Echo and all that stuff. But there was a guy in my class who I thought of who was so shy, he really blushed. I've never known many people who blush, but you know, and so I, I wanted a contrast and I imagined these two different guys. And one thing I loved when the two young men who made the movie of Going All Away, when I first met them, the director said, ever since he was in high school and read the novel, he wanted to, this would be his first movie. I said, but you know, you're just 30 years old. <laughs> this is 97. I, how did you even know about the book? He said, well, my father was in the literary guild and it was a literary guild selection. And one day it was raining and I wanted something to read and I looked at his shelf. I saw this had something to do with sex and young people. <laughs> so I read it. But then the great thing was he said, you know those two guys, Sonny and Gunner? I said, yeah. He says, I'm both those guys. <laughs> and that I love that because I think in a way we're all both, you know, the confident guy and the shy, unsure of himself guy. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, the fact that that book was picked up, you said that was, uh, it was like a book of the month selection or uh, something? Literary Guild. Literary yeah. Guild. I do find that fairly surprising because the book um, has a lot of, I don't know, passages that I would imagine would be considered um, questionable, controversial. controversial. It's a pretty dirty book. It's, but wait a minute. What you forget, <laughs> and I think one reason it caused a big stir uh -huh. in Indianapolis, nobody was reading Updike and Philip Roth and a lot of writers who were doing much more than I was about real intimate sexual intimacy. You know, if you hadn't been reading contemporary novels, then you would have really been shocked. And I think that was the case with mm -hmm. a lot of people. But I wasn't out of the blue, you know, yeah. writing with this frankness. There already been Portnoy's complaint, for heaven's sake, right. and Updike's couples. And so I don't think it was that much out of the range of what was being written then. In terms of contemporary fiction yeah, in the country. Right. But in terms of Indianapolis, yeah. you you had your challenges. Yes. Yeah. Well, in terms, of, and I think it would have been the same with any place in the Midwest. But interestingly, when the, the novel was republished by another publisher in 89, I think, and the publisher said, could we get a woman to write the introduction, sort of to make it okay, a mm. woman writer? So I got an old friend of mine, writer named Sarah Davidson, who had written some wonderful books. She wrote a book about her roommates at Berkeley called Loose Change. But anyway, she wrote this introduction. She grew up in L.A., and she said that the these mores of the 50s were all over the country and she said she went with a boyfriend when she was a senior in high school they went to Disneyland and he was very well dressed he had khakis a tweed coated jacket but he had a beard and they wouldn't let him in to Disneyland <laughs> and they she managed to see the manager and the manager said you can't come in he said why not and, and the manager said because you have a beard he said well what's that got to do with it and the manager said this is a family place <laughs> so that was like 
that wasn't just the Midwest. Yeah. Well, um, similarly, I see the female characters in Going All the Way mm. as as representations of, of types that, that Sonny would have perceived at that time, whether it was the swinging single mother that Gunnar yeah, had yeah. or the, the sort of fretting, overly protective mother yeah. that he had. Um, well, by the way, when you were mentioning the women, uh, the woman I like best is the Jewish woman <laughs> who is portrayed by Rachel Weiss in the movie. And my favorite scene is when they go, uh, Gunner and Sonny, they, Gunner picks her up at the Heron Art Museum and they go across to have coffee. And he's coming on like, because he always, the girls always like him, and she's putting him down. And it's really, it's a, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, you know, where she says, well, Daddy says I have to stay here another year and join the country club. But then, of course, I'm leaving. And he says, oh, where to? And she says, why, New York, of course. You know, like he said, <laughs> he said oh, well, well, may, maybe I'll go to New York. Uh, he said, what will you do there? She says, uh, oh, I'll, I'll study. I'll, I'll study. And she gets this little smile and says, what would you study? <laughs> He's just <laughs> floundering around. It's really wonderful. Would you? I, I actually found a passage um, that I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. and it, it is about Marty. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if you would maybe maybe read read this passage. Yeah. It's when he's anticipating going to the party. There's going to be a party of some art student friends of Marty, and Gunner fixed it so Sonny could come too. He was really excited about it, figuring something might happen that would open up new possibilities for him, serve as an entry into real life. The problem was Gunner said he could either come alone or bring a girl, and Sonny couldn't decide whether or not he should take Buddy Porter. Taking her might be best because it would show the other girls that he could get a girl if he wanted, that he wasn't some poor schlunk who couldn't get a date for Saturday night. On the other hand, there might be some fabulous girl at the party who he'd see across a crowded room and know it's for him, and they'd madly embrace and live happily ever after. In that case, Buddy would just be in the way, and he'd wish he hadn't taken her. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. On today's program, WFIU's Yael Cassander speaks with Indianapolis native Dan Wakefield. Wakefield is the author of the best-selling novel, Going All the Way, and recently reissued a World War II homefront novel under the apple tree. So it seems as though both of those books are really about a male bond, whether it's male friendship or a sibling yeah. relationship. And so I'm curious about why 
that particular bond between men seems to come up again and again as the real meat of your inquiry. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. I just uh, said to my friend Jim Tom last night, the, the guy who was the model for Gunner, Ted Stagg, who went to Wabash and Shoreridge and was a great football star, a great person, whenever I went to New York, all my life, I would stay at his place and we would talk about the old days. And anyway, he died a year ago and I I really miss him. You know, every time I read the sports page, every time I read something about Tiger Woods, I say, oh my God, I want to tell Ted about this and he's not there. And a mutual friend who shared an apartment with us in the 1950s for a while, called me up recently and said, you know, he said, you know, I've been married twice and uh, I've had very meaningful women in my life, but Ted being gone, that's somehow different. <laughs> I it, it has a deeper effect on me almost because it was a, a bond of somebody you could say anything to. And I guess that's there. Yeah. <clears throat> So long, uh, long before you returned mm. to your Hoosier hometown, you returned to your Christian faith, yeah. which I found to be quite a surprise. Religion figures in both of the novels we've been discussing, but in a kind of interesting way. Artie, the little boy, he kind of goes through the motions and prays mm. sort of mm. superstitiously. And Sonny, of course, is adamantly opposed yeah, to the right. religion that his parents are trying to shove down his throat. Yeah. He's downright sacrilegious. Yeah. So, again, I was surprised to discover that you had embraced your faith. Maybe you can share with us about that transition. Well, I think, you know, most people, when they return to faith, it comes out of really a high point in their life or a low point. I mean, the high point being, I think it was Tolstoy who's, you know, regarded as the greatest writer in the world. And he says, is this all there is? You know, well, there's got to be something else. With more people, it's like me, you come from a low point. And, and I had been in Hollywood. I did the series James of 15. But then after that, I stayed on and I tried to do other Things I, I wrote three scripts, only one of them was made, and I was drinking more and went to a doctor, found my resting pulse was 120, twice as much as it should be, and I went back. Oh, and this is good. The, the doctor said, well, everything else of your physical part seems okay. Tell me, are you in the entertainment business? And I'd say, oh, yeah, how did you know? So... I was smart enough that I got on a plane to Boston the next day, and I was lucky to find a great doctor 
who had started a cardiac rehab program. For the first of my time in my life, I got on a diet and started doing exercise. And that was in around, and my pulse went down to 80. And then he said, would you be willing to not have a drink for a month? It should be 60. And I did that. And just before Christmas, I was in a bar, not drinking, but that's where my friends often were. And I heard at another table, a guy said, I think I'm going, I'd like to go to church on Christmas Eve. And And it just was like a, oh, I'd like to do that. And I didn't even know what churches were in Boston, though I'd lived there 20 years. And I looked in the Boston Globe religion page, and it said King's Chapel, Candlelight Service, and carols. So that sounded innocuous enough. And I went there, but they didn't say that the minister would read little passages between the carols. And he read something from an Evelyn Waugh novel about the latecomers to the manger and then mentioned the latecomers to the church. And I thought, oh, my God, he knows I'm here. And I, it was one of those below zero days, nights in Boston. I started quaking and shivering and thought, well, uh, maybe I'm having a religious experience. But it turned out to be the flu. <laughs> and so I, then I went on Easter, which was a nice day. Anyway, I became deeply involved in that church. And one thing I really liked was that the minister talked about conversion not as some lightning out of the sky, but I think either the Greek or Hebrew word for conversion was turning. And that's what I felt like. It was just a turning. You turn a little way and you're going in a different direction. And that whole experience at King's Chapel in Boston was uh, just a great part of my life. And it, and it really went back to I'd had a very deep childhood experience when I was nine years old going to a Baptist Sunday school that a friend at school lady took me to. So anyway, it built on or, you know, restored something else. It, it really seemed as though you had a real animus against religion, though, previously. Oh, yeah. Well, in college, yeah, it was part of the revolt against home and all that. And my hero was Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And I remember reading a Hemingway story uh, called A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, in which the man has his own prayer, which is Arnada, who art in nada, the Spanish word for nothing. And, and I latched on to that. And yet, amazingly enough, when I was in Israel, and this was like only two years after college, and when I did that story going out with the fishermen on Galilee, it was quite beautiful and mysterious. And when we came back, at dawn, the fishermen come in at dawn, and the captain of the boat, it was really like eight guys with oars, very primitive oars. But anyway, he said, well, I can't pay you, but I could, we'll take a couple of fish and eat them. And he went into in the town of Nazareth. There are these little people who had fires, and we cooked the fish over the fire. And I thought, gee, Something about this seems familiar. <laughs> and then one of my favorite passage in the New Testament is John 21, where 
It's after the crucifixion, and the disciples are out fishing, and a figure on the shore says, drop the nets on the other side, and they come up with fishes, and, uh, and the figure on the shore, they realize, is Jesus. And he has this fire waiting on the shore to put the fish on, and he says, come and dine. And I thought, I, I experienced that. Hmm. You spend a lot of your creative energy these days helping people access their own spirituality through writing. Can you talk about well, that work? See, the, the way that the book Returning began, I took uh, a course at King's Chapel the minister gave called Religious Autobiography. And out of that came an essay in the New York Times magazine called Returning to Church. And then I had offers to make it a book and so on. And when I finished the book, usually when I finish a book, I just want to take time off, do nothing, writing or literary. But I had this impulse to teach something like the course that had done so much for me. And I'd been asked to teach courses at the Boston Center for Adult Education, but they just wanted me to teach a writing course. And I thought, well, I don't need to do that. But then I went to them and I said, what about a course called Spiritual Autobiography? So, you know, I didn't want to say religious because I'm not a minister and I, and I wanted it open to everybody, whether you belong to any religious faith or not. So they said, well, we'll put it in the catalog, see if anybody comes. But we need 12 people to have a course go forward like that. And I went in the night it was to begin, and there were 12 people sitting around a table. That began it, and then about half of them invited me to their churches, and then other people invited me. And then somebody said, oh, could you do it for a weekend? That was in 1987. I've done it all over the country and in Northern Ireland and at health spas, churches, monasteries, religious, uh, Esalen. And one of the best was at Sing Sing Prison. <laughs> I, I did the course three years there. But it was all, it's been an amazing part of my life and taken me to all kind of places and meeting all kind of people. I just did a version of it this uh, spring, six Sundays before Advent at Northminster Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, and that was great. Mm -hmm. And so when you're instructing people or guiding people in this process, you're encouraging them to approach the task the way you did, to, to kind of reflect on your life and your relationship to God or... The... Not not even that. I just give them a series of exercises, I mean, of writing things that, that evoke memory. And I say, you know, if, if you can't think of a spiritual experience of childhood, just think of a meaningful experience. And I loved, I found my favorite definition of miracles in a Willa Cather novel called Death Comes for the Archbishop. And at one point, says in there, uh, miracles seem to me not to come from voices or faces coming to us from far off, but from our own senses 
being made finer so our eyes can see and our ears can hear what is there about us always. I thought, wow, that's it. And you know, one of the exercises, I have people go out and take a plant or a leaf or a stone and meditate on it for 15 minutes and then write what thoughts, what things come out of it. And uh, so a lot of it's about the senses, is it in any way similar to the kind of training that people refer to as mindfulness these days? Or is it strictly Christian theologically? Oh, it's not. It's not Christian. I, I, I read a couple of things. I'm a Christian, but I don't require that other people be a Christian or anything. There's a wonderful quote. I, I then wrote a book called The Story of Your Life writing a spiritual autobiography, and I used writing from people who'd done these exercises in the course. And there's a quote from James Carroll, a writer who used to be a Paulist priest, and he said, the very act of placing one word after another to tell a story is by itself holy. And Joan Didion starts out an essay saying, we tell stories in order to live. It's one of the deepest impulses. And also what I found is that writing the story is a deeper experience than just telling it. You know, we have a lot of uh, wonderful things like 12-step programs where people tell their story, but you can tell your story so much it becomes glib. Mm -hmm. And to really write it means you have to master it. And in fact, I've always said writing is a kind of meditation because the idea of meditation is to clear your mind of all the extraneous stuff. But when you're writing, by definition, as you're putting down words on paper, you can't be thinking about 70 other things. So it is, you know, you have to be quiet, you have to be centered, as it were, as you're writing, and to write about, I think even to write about difficult experiences, it's like you master the experience. It's integrated. It's not just floating around there. It sounds as though you're getting a lot of satisfaction in teaching. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, I've always loved teaching, and I, I've had some great students, and I taught at Florida International University for 15 years, and three of my students have published books. And this wasn't my student because he was a poet, but I heard him give a reading of his poetry, and I asked to see some, and I sent three of his poems to The Nation magazine, and they published. They were the first one to buy one of his poems to publish. He is... Uh, Richard Blanco, who was the uh, inaugural poet at Obama's second inauguration, and he came to IUPUI, and I got to have dinner with him, but that was a great thing.
Do you see yourself getting back to fiction? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. I, I've been struggling with it. And it's really hard. I mean, writing fiction, writing anything is hard. Is it something about getting back into that rhythm or inventing characters? Yeah, it's a, it is something about getting back into it. And, you know, it really takes discipline and isolating yourself and focusing and concentrating. Listen, it took me a whole summer to get the first two pages of going all the way. I mean, I would say it was at least a month to get the first sentence, and I could recite it to you now. I don't have to, but anyway, because I always felt like the first sentence has to sound right. It's like music, you know, you, you have to hit the right note and then you can go on. And the first of it is agony, you know, like you're lucky to get one page, two pages, and then slowly four or five pages. And then there comes a wonderful time about two thirds of the way through where it, you're just taking it down. And there's nothing like that. Hmm. So. Well, another writing activity you've been involved in in recent years has been editing Vonnegut's yeah. letters. Can you talk about your relationship to Kurt oh, Vonnegut? Well, and, and I that? always think of Vonnegut as the godfather of going all the way. Well, the, the publisher who liked the manuscript going all the way had just published Slaughterhouse-Five the year before. So he said to me, uh, do you mind if could we send this uh, to Kurt? And if it would really help if he uh, gave us a blurb or something. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, I've only met him once, but we've corresponded. And uh, he seemed like a great guy. This, I said, my novel is nothing like what he does. So I have no idea what he'd think, but go ahead. And then a couple of days later, the publisher calls and he said, I, I've got a telegram here from Vonnegut says, you must publish this important novel, Get This Boy in Our Stable. And then he reviewed it in Life magazine. And it was one of the funniest reviews I've ever, he said, Dan Wakefield's a friend of mine. I would praise his novel even if it was putrid. <laughs> Nobody's ever used putrid in a book review before. But he said, I wouldn't give my word of honor. It was really good, and I give my word of honor. And then he went on. And we were friends from then on. You know, he was so supportive of not just me, but all his writer friends, even his non, you know, his, I love that his letters include people from his high school days, friends throughout his life. Uh, and typical of him, the last time I saw him, I was in New York with a book called The Hijacking of Jesus, and the book didn't get much response, and he had come to a talk I gave in New York about it, and then he said, let's go have dinner, and uh, we, we were sitting in the Waldorf bar, having a steak and there's two young guys see us and they obviously are staring at Kurt 
and they come over and, and one of them says, are you the real Kurt Vonnegut? <laughs> and he says, yeah. And then he says, but this is my friend Dan Wakefield. He starts telling them all about my book, which they have no interest in the world. And, but, you know, that was the way he was to promote his friends and help them. Wow. He was a, a rare, a rare human being. Yeah. And by the way, and we had a funny, long-standing dialogue about humanism and Christianity. And uh, the Sunday that my piece, Returning to the Church, came out, I came home from church, and on the answering machine, I turned it on and said, this is Kurt, I forgive you. <laughs> and then... Years later, I saw he had a poem in the New Yorker. I never knew he'd written any poems. And I sent him a postcard. I said, I see you are now a poet. I forgive you. <laughs> then he sent back a postcard saying, not as bad as you becoming a Christian. But the funny thing is, I, I've written a, a pretty long essay called Kurt Vonnegut, Christ-Loving Atheist. And that's his term. And he really wrote more perceptively about Jesus than most theologians. He was very sensitive about that. That was writer Dan Wakefield speaking with WFIU's Yael Cassander. You've been listening to Profiles on WFIU. Thanks for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.